And we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. And I want to talk first of all about the reality of this conflict. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So right there, he says, the, the key to actually overcoming uh, the desires of the flesh, those, those unwieldy realities of the sinful nature that once dominated us, but being born again, uh, we're, we're supposed to be freed from, but they still seem to have power. How do we actually become free from that? Paul says the key is that you have to walk by the Spirit. Notice it's something that we're commanded to do. Uh, and so there's something going on. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh, the sin nature, are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So right there, he establishes this theological grid that there is something unique that is unique to the Christian life specifically. That when we are born again, remember that regeneration uh, is that we die with Christ and we are resurrected in the newness of life, that to be filled with the Spirit and to be baptized with the Spirit, uh, to be regenerated by the Spirit, is that we literally become the dwelling place for the Spirit of God, that He comes to make His home within us. But the fact that the dead flesh has the ability to resurrect itself shows us that we also run into the dilemma of the possibility of grieving the Spirit, of lying against the Spirit, of frustrating the Spirit. So these, this duality that occurs within us, there's, there's got to be a way to overcome, that we desire to do what is right, but we keep finding ourselves doing what is wrong. Why is that? Why does that take place in the Christian life? And I, I've dealt with this many times, uh, I mean, more than I can even count, of counseling people within the church that find that they are being dominated by, by habits of the flesh, or what I should say, habits of sin, and because they're not finding victory in it, they begin to second guess whether they were even saved to begin with. But I just want to encourage you that this is what, this is what Paul has to say. He says, listen, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, once again, here's the key to the victory. But what does that actually mean? To walk by the spirit, to be led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So he defines for us a conflict. And conflict does not mean peaceful coexistence, let alone cooperation. There is no cooperation with the flesh and the spirit. In fact, Paul is very clear to the Galatian church. He says, why are you showing us once again that it's possible to slip back to allow the old man, the old woman who has died with Christ, resurrect itself? And he says, why are you trying to perfect now in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? So the battle it's possible to lose the battle, is essentially. It's not about the possibility of losing one's salvation. It's the possibility of not having victory now. We have been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. And I think that that, that that reality that, yes, the old man, the old woman did indeed die with Christ. Uh, some of us live with a resurrected corpse uh, that is dominating our Christian lives and killing our testimony. 
And I think that Romans 7, verse 18, uh, points out the possibility of this and the reality of it for all Christians, even the best of them. For Paul wrote these words, and I don't think that he meant this facetiously. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And notice, he's not talking about you. He doesn't say, I know that nothing good dwells in you. Uh, he says, nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. So the old Paul or the old Saul, uh, he recognizes, has the ability to come alive again and again. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And he goes on to say, for the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep finding myself doing, and who will save me from this body of death? He even talks about that the spirit is willing, but the flesh fights against it. And so he's talking about this reality. This isn't, this isn't cooperation. This is not coexistence. This is conflict within the heart of every Christian. But the reality is, is that there's a possibility of victory. And I want you to know today that, that for those of you that have found yourselves in, in patterns of brokenness that put into your mind questions about your own salvation, just know that if you're worried about that, is probably a good sign that, you're, that you were known by Jesus, have been born again, because I can tell you that before I got saved, I wasn't worried about functioning in the flesh. In fact, I loved it, celebrated it, and I did not think about Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world, and it takes, and the world is blind, blinded by the enemy, and it doesn't matter how bright the light shines, if you're blind, you can't see the light. There needs to be a supernatural regeneration where we are given the vision, uh, which produces within us a desire. And that's why Christians who continue in patterns of sin are the most miserable sinners in the world, because you know that's not what you are called to. You know it's so much less than what God would have for you, and that's why it's so heartbreaking. Uh, sinners who are dead in their sins and have not the life of Christ in them are not functioning in this constant state of ultimate shame and guilt because they're, not, they, they're functioning in what, in what they know uh, because they have not come alive. And it's not that you won't experience guilt when you do something dumb, but it's not the, it's not the same. Uh, and I think that there is a, that, that desire says that the, the spirit was within us, but we just haven't learned how to walk in the victory of that spirit. And so look what he, he goes on to say. So I think this, this is what we need to understand. So when we talk about the flesh, when Paul is utilizing this, he's talking about what we are by natural birth, and the spirit is what we become by the new birth. So he's talking about natures. And I think that we need to understand that when we are born again, we receive a new nature, Christ's nature, by his spirit coming to live within us. So he, that is the flesh, is a corpse awaiting the resurrection. And we have to speak in all seriousness of his past, which unfortunately is always present. Sorry, that was my mic. Did it just go off? Just try this, just a second. Is it on now? Am I, am I good? Because I don't feel like I'm going through. Is it coming through? Oh, weird. Maybe my pants are a little snugger than they ought to be. <laughs> Dang it! I'm trying to talk to you guys about self-control? I felt good in them until just now. Well, let's talk about the works of the flesh, okay? <laughs> they have just become evident. 
Josh Wyatt likes to eat. Uh, all right. The works of the flesh. Here are the two players. The works of the flesh are evident. First of all, I want you to note that the Spirit says that it's the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. The Spirit, uh, His character uh, is not something that we produce. As we yield to Him, it, it becomes revealed in and through our lives. But the works of the flesh is something that we actually accomplish, uh, and, and we work for it and we pay for it. And he says, these are the works of the flesh. And he begins with this list, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that. And things, so this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, but I will tell you what this list is. And he says it, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He gives a similar list in Romans 1 when he says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he even takes it further. He says, not only do you do these things, but you approve of those who practice them, which I think creates uh, tensions for, for you and I as we have been utterly infiltrated by the age of spectacle in which we live uh, in which this list here, because if you look at the fruit of the Spirit list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, so the work of the flesh. If we were to separate the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit into two TV channels, <laughs> we got HBO and Hallmark, okay? <laughs> and Hallmark always sucks, always. It's always bad. Like when you see family-friendly uh, uh, programming, you know that just is another word for bad. Like, that's just bad. And yet, that is the fruit. Like, who wants to watch a movie about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? There's no plot there. That wouldn't make any of the modern library lists. I mean, we need intrigue, and intrigue requires sin. And, and, and we, we laugh, but I just want you to take, take into consideration, think of one Great movie, one, think of, name for me one movie that's ever won the best picture, Oscar, that functioned primarily off of the fruit of the spirit list. Did someone just say Jurassic Park? I am positive <laughs> <laughs> that you have not seen that movie. <laughs> what, what movie? Chariots of Fire. Come on. Okay. You win. <laughs> That's not even fair. That was a pretty good movie, though. But that's one movie, okay? There's a lot of movies made. But I, I want you to think about this, that what sells, what sells in the age of spectacle is the fallenness of the world. That's what creates it, and it, it appeals, and I want you to know that just because we're born again, we're called to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good, but do we adhere to, so we're, we may think like, I'm not, let's go through the list, I'm not sexually immoral, impure, sensual, so you're like, I, I'm clear, like I, I am a, you know, I'm a one, I'm a one woman man, 
uh, I love my wife. I'm not, I'm not having an affair. I'm not, I'm not looking at pornography. You're like, you're, you, you feel like you've got that covered. Okay, uh, great. Uh, you're like, I'm not really an idolater. That one I can probably challenge you on a little bit because idolatry is, is giving our hearts affections or allegiance. Uh, it's whatever we give our allegiance to, which could be your spouse. I know what it's like to put my wife on the altar of idolatry where because she's awesome and almost worthy of worship but when i worshiped my wife in the past what i discovered is that human beings aren't meant to be gods uh, and that was far more pressure than she was up for uh, so i know i've seen parents do it with their children i've seen people do it with their jobs i've done it with music it's, it's, so idolatry is a hard one. Calvin, even Calvin himself said that the heart is a human idol factory, that you pull up one and it reveals, it reveals a million others. Uh, but, but okay, what about sorcery? You're like, I'm, like, are you talking like Harry Potter right now? Are we like, there's, you know, there's no like blossoming wizards or witches in the, in the full bet? I mean, even sorcery, okay, so, so you made it past that. What, enmity, let's get like, you're, you're clear so far on the works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, never been jealous, uh, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Or, I mean, let's, let's admit the fact that if we're really honest, we probably fall into the trappings of everything on this list. If we're not practicing those things we could definitely see based upon what we take into our hearts and minds through our entertainment, through our culture, we approve of those who do such things. So we're all guilty. I think that's important for us to understand. And I want you to think too about the works of the flesh according to our culture. If we were to take even the first three, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, let's just talk about sexuality in the context of our current cultural debates, which is it has become almost a hate crime uh, to say that the only appropriate expression of sexual intercourse is between one man and one woman in marriage. Is that popular in our culture right now? Is that acceptable? Even amongst Christians, more and more pastors are becoming so uncomfortable with what Jesus's sexual ethic is, is that they're willing to try to figure out ways around the parts that make us uncomfortable. And, and that's a great way to approach scripture. Just take what you like. That's always worked well. It's called a slow and then very quick death. That's what has happened historically when the church has moved toward liberalism. It's attempts to maintain the gospel but eradicate the Christian ethic because it doesn't fit into the cultural norms. But when we look at this list, let's just say our culture celebrates this list and it, it elevates it to the point of idolatry and every great empire Every great empire in human history before its collapse has historically is, has an obsession with fame and sexual immorality. Yeah, I just read I, Claudius, a few months ago by Robert Graves, probably the, the first really great historical fiction novel uh, written in the 20th century around, around the emperor Claudius. And the, the whole investigation, it's a, it's a very well-investigated look at the moral decay that actually unhinged the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world has ever known. Uh, and, and it became obsessed with spectacle and sexual immorality and perversities that go beyond, uh, go beyond sexual uh, interactions between various people. I mean, it was sexual interactions between various things. 
Uh, that's how low the Roman Empire got. But are we that far off? Where are we culturally headed? And so these are the works of the flesh, and this is what our culture promotes, and we squirm as Christians when we try to adhere to the ethics of Jesus because the pressures from our culture are so great and we're so infiltrated mentally and emotionally and spiritually by what our culture is feeding us. It's a doctrine. It's a gospel. that It's, it's a gospel straight from the pits of hell that we eat, that we drink in. It's a communion that we participate in. It's a liturgy that is changing the way that we worship. And it's affecting even our view of the true gospel and the ways that we live out our lives as Christians. This list is the works of the flesh. And compared to the fruit of the Spirit, I think it is important for us. And let me just say one more thing on the, on the works of the flesh. I'll give you another example of how the church is changing its trajectory right now. Uh, Ten years ago, it would be pretty much unheard of uh, maybe a little, little more than 10 years ago, it would have been unheard of for a pastor to drink in America, not in Europe. Uh, so, and there was a big shift, uh, kind of beginning with the emergent movement, but then there was a realization that our pendulum swings tend to be this, that, that we are free and liberated under the gospel of grace, uh, and God loves us, and, he, and, and yes, it's true. He is crazy about you on your worst day. If we don't have a massive vision of God's love, we will not, we will not live successfully as, as Christians. But we need to remember that his love may be elective. He chooses to love you in, in, in your sin. It is also purifying. He is not content to leave you there. And I think that the legalism that creeps in is this attempt to create what I call selective sanctification. Well, like, we can't ever, so Christianity, and this is why we're afraid to talk about sanctification, because sanctification can so quickly become lists of what not to do. And that's not what the gospel's about. The gospel is about liberation, but what we need to understand is that when the Holy Spirit liberates us, we're set free not to do what we want, but free to do what is right. But with that freedom comes the possibility of not doing what is right. And this is where Christians begin to use the liberation of the gospel for licentious living. It's, it's, the, it's taking on that, that, that stance that I'm saved and, I can, and, and Jesus loves me no matter what and therefore I live as I want. And this is why Christians become trapped in, in, in brokenness. And so drinking is an interesting one. I'm grateful that we moved away from the legalism that created lines that are not found in the New Testament nor in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that you can never drink. However, I understand why churches have taken such hardline stances because we've seen the damage, the massive damage that alcohol has, has wreaked in many people's families, even here in this context. And I just saw an article last week in the New York Times that alcoholism is, uh, is increasing at, a, at an alarming rate right now in America. And so we have the liberty to have a glass of wine. But I think this is fascinating. We're not even talking about the fact that many of, many of you um, are crossing the line of what is acceptable drinking because it says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And I know how easy it is that that line of, of like, do we hold to G.K. Chesterton's vision that, that being buzzed is godly, but being drunk is bad? I mean, it's clever and cute, but I don't know if it's healthy or safe. Uh, and I think that this is the thing is like, now we're like, who cares if, I mean, alcohol is one thing. Like, now we're talking about, is it, should Christians smoke weed? 
uh, and now that it's legalized. And, we're, and we keep pushing the parameters of acceptable behavior all because we are viewing the gospel and the scriptures through the lens of culture rather than the lens of cult- culture through the lens of the scriptures. The scripture is very clear that we are to be sober-minded. The scripture is clear that we are to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. Did you know that the word sorcery is the Greek word that where we get the word pharmaceutical, which actually has direct connection to drug use? But we're not aware of that. And we think of these things in terms of, of what the society, if the society says it's right, then we must, we must change our view as Christians if we're gonna be effective in society. That's how liberalism is birthed. You don't compromise the gospel so that you can reach the world because all you end up doing is becoming like the world and the world isn't interested if there's no difference inside. Give me, some, give me, give me a few rules. Why would anyone want that? No one would want that. And so I think that this list, this works of the flesh is something that we need to be aware of because sexual immorality, drunkenness, strife, enmity, idolatry, the rivalries, the dissensions, the divisions, the envy, all of these things um, play into our societal norms and are so accepted by our culture that it is becoming more and more challenging for us as Christians to stand in the truth. So when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice, not fruits, it's one fruit, and which means it's the activity of the Spirit. The Spirit produces this. And if you want this whole series, people have asked, like, what is the evidence that I'm truly Spirit-filled? It's not your ability to do signs, wonders. It's not your ability to speak in tongues. It's not your ability to preach or to teach because there's been many great preachers and teachers um, who lived morally questionable lives. Uh, Great, great people have done great, excuse me, great people, people that have been greatly used by God have been less than morally uh, acceptable. That's not the sign. Usability uh, the Spirit, remember, is sovereign. He utilizes his, he, he is the gift, and he is sovereign to work through us as he sees fit, and he can take a messed up vessel and work through that vessel powerfully. And I, if you want to watch a fascinating story that will mess with your idea of what kind of person will God use, watch the documentary Lonnie Frisbee, The Life and Death of a Hippie Preacher, because God used him powerfully during the Jesus movement to reach thousands and thousands of people. And the whole time that he was being utilized in Calvary Chapel, nor Vineyard would exist without his, his involvement in both, of those, in both of those great works. At the same time, he was sleeping with young men in the youth group. And I think that this is the, one of those things while he was married, and, and he was a compromised person who had an area of brokenness that he did not experience victory in. Did God still utilize him as he preached the gospel? Paul says, I don't care if people preach the gospel uh, out of vain, uh, vain ambition because I'm just glad that Jesus' name is preached. God will honor wherever the name of Christ is proclaimed. That's why you can get false prophets and people getting saved at their events. It's not a question of whether God will utilize, and it's not our place to question why he would utilize um, broken vessels because we're all broken. The question is, is do we have the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives? And what is that fruit? Well, he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So these qualities we see actually outside of the church. I've known many people who are not Christians, who are loving people, 
who are peaceful people, who are gentle people, who are kind people. But there's a unique context here that this is the manifestation of one who is totally under the control of the Spirit, and Paul means something very distinct. Remember, our vocabulary as Christians matters a lot. And so when we talk about love, we aren't utilizing it in the same way. So love here is that agape love, a love that seeks the highest good no matter what. It's a sacrificial love. It's the love that is poured out in our hearts. It's a love that is not natural to our nature. It is a love that comes into our lives when we become born again. For we're told that the Spirit pours out the love of God. So I believe that the first three are kind of God-centered the ability to know God's love, to receive God's love. Uh, and then what's the second one? Joy. This is the intern, internal strength that reminds us that all is well, regardless of our outward circumstances. It's that, that peace. Remember what Jesus said? Uh, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is the belief that no matter how dark the days get, even with the apocalypse happening tomorrow morning, guys. It's okay. This is a, and that doesn't happen unless you believe that God is under control and that he will ultimately set all things right and that not even death can stop the love of God from accomplishing what he's going to accomplish, which is give us an eternity with him, new bodies, resurrection life. This joy is, is birthed out of that awareness that comes through our relationship uh, that has been restored to us through our faith in Christ by the Spirit of God. So, peace. This fruit of the Spirit comes about in peace. What did Jesus say in John 14, 27? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This isn't just being uh, uh, passive. This is about shalom. It's about wholeness. It's about being reconnected to the source of life itself. It's about the image of God being restored within us as we yield to the Spirit. This peace is something that is profound because it's a rest that comes through our faith in Jesus and the Spirit comes to manifest that peace in our lives. What about the next three? Because the next three really are kind of outward. If the first three are upward focused, the next three are outward and that's patience, kindness, uh, and goodness. And patience uh, is something, I have no patience. In fact, I always think that one of the things that I have to continually turn to God for uh, by his spirit is that my natural kind of default setting is actually restlessness, not peace, and no patience. I, I've, my entire life has been marked by constant upheaval, and I've learned to adapt to that. that my old nature knows, uh, knows change too well. And so for me, I get bored if there's not enough change. And so before Door of Hope, I've been here for eight years. That is a work of the Spirit. You should believe in Jesus because I've been here for eight years. Before this job, I had never worked a job longer than two years in my life, nor had I lived anywhere longer than two years in my entire life. Uh, so my whole, Darcy and I, I was talking with Josh, Do you guys know that the girls moved? They moved back to Indiana. It's very sad. Josh, you led worship uh, last week. Uh, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. Uh, he had, or two weeks ago. Uh, they, they just moved back to Indiana, and it, he called me. He's like, oh, man, I'm, I can't handle moving. It's so hard. And then I just sent him a text. I'm like, I've moved 23 times. 
And he's like, that, Darcy and I have moved so many times, we wanted to start a company called The Settlers, where we help people move into their house and make it feel like they've lived there their whole lives in one day, because we can do that. We're that good at it. Uh, and so I, I just, I, for me, change and, and upheaval and restlessness are the marks of my natural personhood. And so I have to rely so heavy on the Spirit, for patience is gentle resilience. It's the stick to that allows us to continue to pursue Christ even when life is insane and the world is crazy. And listen, are the works of the flesh not evident in our world right now? Look at Barcelona this week. Look at the white supremacy in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's so tragic. The, the, but should we be shocked? The days are dark and sin is real and people are broken. And the world needs to see the fruit of the Spirit because it may not make an exciting movie, it makes for a really healthy and compelling life. What does he go on to say? Patience, kindness, mild rather than sharp, selfless benevolence. Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you peace? Are you peaceful? Are you joyful? Are you loving? What about goodness? I think it's interesting. Remember when the young rich ruler came up to Jesus and he calls him good teacher and he says, why do you call me good? There is none who are good but God. And I think that this goodness uh, is, is really, it's when the spirit is under control, when his fruit is being manifested, I think it's another way of saying what God intended. Uh, when God created, he said it was good. And it's another way of saying it's exactly what I intended it to be. Uh, and so for us, it's coming back into that place where the image of God is being daily restored in us, where the goodness, what God intended for our lives is being manifested through us. Is it right? Goodness is another way of saying being right, doing what is right. Uh, faithfulness, uh, that's that fidelity that is so desperately needed. Think about this. I mean, in churches, uh, unfaithful. Being unfaithful is so culturally acceptable that it's, it's made its way into the church where there is a lack of covenantal commitment uh, with the community. Just as I think uh, we see relationships um, seem to become more and more disposable in our culture, uh, so is our ability to commit to communities. And church life is hard to make it here Sunday after Sunday. The average person, even within Door of Hope, probably comes to church two out of the four four Sundays a month. There, there's, it's just easy. Our lives are busy. We're bombarded uh, with things to do uh, that are constantly taking up our time, and it affects our ability to be faithful people. When the Spirit is under control, faithfulness is His nature, uh, and fidelity is His nature. Uh, remember what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. The Spirit is always faithful. It is our faithlessness in following Him that creates a lack of faithfulness in our lives. He cannot deny himself. And then there's two more, gentleness, submissive to the will of God, teachable, considerate, self-control. I think it's important that we remember that we must master ourselves before we can serve others. And the spirit in control means the flesh under control. I think that's very important. So when we look at this nine ninefold fruit of the Spirit. You want to have a litmus test of whether or not you're growing in your likeness to Christ? You want to know if you're Spirit-filled? Are you more loving this week than you were last week? Are you more, are you more joyful? Are you more 
peaceful? Are you more patient? Are you more kind? Are you more gentle? Are you more faithful? We should be increasing in our, in our reflection of Christ. As we grow closer to him, we become more like him. So this is what, this is what we need to ask then. What is the way to victory? If the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit um, are at play and at war with one another, if the Spirit and the flesh are at war, how do we have victory in the Spirit? And Paul actually answers that question really beautifully. I don't have to talk too much about the works of the flesh or what the fruit of the Spirit is because the question isn't, what is love? The question is, is how do I actually manifest that love um, more perfectly? And, and Paul gives the answer, actually, in verses 24 and 25. He gives us the way to victory. Because victory is not something that we're working toward. It's something we're working from. But we have this unfortunate ability to forget to remember. And this is why we need to daily remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. So here is the, the first key. Crucify the flesh. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Um, this is an important statement. Now, for some of you, theologically, that you might be challenged in thinking, wait, didn't it say in Romans 6, 6 that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin? Isn't the, crucif isn't the crucified life a one-time event? And I would say that, that it is, that is the moment you are born again, the old man, the old woman died with Christ and that you were given new life. But as I said in the beginning, the problem is, is that you have a corpse that has the ability to resurrect itself. And so the battle against the flesh, it's not so much that we're putting to death something that's already dead, it's that we're continually having to remind ourselves of the position that we are in Christ. This is, I think Tim Keller said it best in his commentary on uh, uh, on uh, Romans 12, verse 1, when he says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. And Keller's statement is that, that unlike the sacrificial, the sacrificial lambs of old, we have this crazy ability to drag ourselves off the altar again and again. And this is why Paul says every day that we have to actually reckon ourselves dead, the old man, the old woman dead, so that we can come alive. And it's not about, this isn't about what you give up. It's about not having, we need to create the most space for the most life possible. And I think that this is really important. So it needs to be decisive. Every day, how do I have the spirit-filled life? Every day is a new day in which you can utilize your liberation in Christ to actually allow the flesh to win or or you can utilize the liberation that you have in Christ to do what is right, which is the surrender of oneself each and every day. And every day is a new battle that can be won or lost depending upon which side you surrender to. I think this is important. It needs to be decisive. It's a daily repentance, if you will. It's a change of direction. I was going this way, I'm now gonna go this way. And that, that decision is a daily decision. It's a constant reminder because we forget that the old man, the old woman has died. And because of that, we allow that corpse to, to rise up and to take control of our days. And this is really important because it's difficult. This is why most Christians live defeated lives. 
And I think that the defeat that we can face in our lives, why patterns of brokenness can continue to plague us, is because we are choosing, we are choosing the path of least resistance, which is almost always the wrong path. Listen to what Hebrews 11.25 says. It says, just to remind us how difficult the Christian life is, the easiest thing in the world is to receive Christ, to accept his salvation, uh, but the most difficult thing is to actually enter into sanctification and stick with him. And I think that this is the, the reality. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why do people sin? Why do they sin? Because it's fun. Because sin's fun for a moment. Candy is fun for a moment, and then you get a stomachache. I, here's the thing. I, I think of this, it's so basic, like the most basic principle of, of, of the need for spiritual disciplines. I'm 44. At 44, you know, I don't have the metabolism of my 20-something self when I just look like a heroin addict no matter what I ate, okay? And so right now, I'm like, I'm not getting younger, and, and I probably more than ever need a, a regular basis for working out. So what's the path of least resistance? So Monday comes, and I'm tired because of Sunday. And so I was going to get up early in the morning and go work out, but then I missed it because it sounded better. To, I, I, I need sleep, and I deserve sleep, and I work hard for you guys. Uh, and so, so then I'm, my OCD self kicks in, and if I miss Monday, well, you can't start on a Tuesday. That's weird. <laughs> You gotta wait till next Monday to start. But I've been doing that game all year this year. And then every once in a while, I'll get so guilt-ridden that I'll, like, I'll go for a run. And that one run will be like, that was horrible. It was the worst thing ever. I don't, I, if I did it every day, it would become easier. But I would have to do it every day before it became easier. And then, then, and then I get into that internal battle and I just I, I give up because it's difficult. But I would feel better. And so this is the thing. This is how we are with our Christian life. We desire to be closer to Jesus, but we don't actually discipline ourselves toward the desire. We're, we, it's too difficult. We like instantaneous everything in our, in our time, in our age. It's difficult. It's easier to watch TV than it is to read a book. It's, it's easier to, to let other people think for you than to think critically. We are moving toward a very dangerous, and we're not moving toward it. We are in the midst of, I think, one of the most dangerous ages in American history because we're the most undisciplined generation that's ever lived in this country. And I think that this is a problem that, that plays itself out in the Christian life because the difficulty of following after Christ when the entire world is saying, that's ridiculous, you need to live this way, requires a, a, a desire that actually turns into action. And this is that crucifying of the life because it needs to be daily. Luke 9.23, Jesus expected us to, to pick up our cross every day. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It needs to be decisive it needs, and we need to recognize it'll be difficult and it needs to be daily. But the most powerful and the most life-giving realities in life are the most difficult pleasures. Any relationship that's worth worth having requires the difficulty of giving yourself again and again for that relationship to grow. All of these things require discipline, and it's foolish for us to think that the Christian life should require no discipline, and, we, and that we're not talking about grace the moment we talk about discipline. That's, that's foolish. 
The discipline is for the purpose of releasing the most grace possible, which leads me to the second, because the negative is you crucify the flesh, but the positive is that we then walk by the Spirit. You can't get rid of something and not replace it with something better. Remember what Jesus said of the demon-possessed person? He says, hey, if one demon leaves, if it's not filled with something good, seven more will come back and make their home within them. And I think that this is a principle that follows through on Christian living. We can't just get rid of bad habits uh, unless we're gonna replace them with better ones. And this is what he says. If we live by the Spirit, in closing, let us keep in step with the Spirit also. And I think this is a powerful verse because he opens up in verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit, uh, it, it seems to be this following him, but keeping in step with him is actually a different Greek word that has a military connotation, which is that you're actually going in the exact same steps as him. You're in line with the Spirit. So the passive side is that the Spirit is leading us. The active side is that we are following hard after him. And I think that this following hard after him is to think about the things that, that shape us. Think about the things that shape how we live. What is it that you're giving yourself to? What is it? And so it's not my place. I'm not here to create legalistic lines for you. And some people want that so bad. They want me to draw lines in the sand for them. They want me to tell them what shows to watch, what not to watch. Tell them whether they should drink or not drink. All of these things, that's not... That's not the responsibility of the preacher. That's the responsibility of you being in tune with the Spirit and understanding how God has hardwired you. Because for every person, those areas, Paul says, let each person be convinced in his own mind. The fact is, is there are certain things that we're utterly clear on. Don't be drunk. I can tell you that. So what does that mean for me? Well, it means that you're gonna start being Spirit-led. And being Spirit-led means that you begin each day beginning with Christ, not with the world. Isn't it hard now to begin with Christ? I've been waking up late. I've found, you know, what's crazy to me is that our president has become more omnipresent than God has. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that as a knock on him or anything. I'm just saying that's the culture we live in. I can't even pick up. I, we moved to studying the Bible on iPads and phones. So what do you have? You're reading your Bible on your phone, and then the news feed comes in, and you're like, Trump just tweeted this, or this just happened in Barcelona, and all of a sudden, you're not reading your Bible, you immediately switch over to the, this, I'm just giving you an insight into my own crazy brain, switch over to this news feed, and all of a sudden, like 45 minutes later, you haven't spent time praying, you haven't spent time reading the word, and you're overwhelmed with anxiety over all the insanity that's happening in the world, and that's how bombarded we are, and we can't figure out why we're living defeated lives. It's because the world has found a way to infiltrate into every arena of our lives, can you imagine? I just think that people had it better and easier when television and smartphones, I remember what it was like to not have a cell phone and I loved it. I went swimming with my cell phone in my back pocket a week ago and it was the greatest thing that happened to me all year because it died for four days. Uh, and I think, that, I think that we're so connected that, we, that, we're, that it's actually creating an existential despair and loneliness that we can't escape. And we wanna be spirit-filled and spirit-led, but we've gotta do the things the spirit does. He wants to teach us. Well, we've gotta take time to put the word into our hearts. He wants us to grow in our love together as a community of faith because we cannot live the Christian life alone. And yet the world wants to isolate us and busy us to the point where we don't have energy for church on Sunday. Do you read the Bible every day? Do you pray every day? Do you fellowship every day? 
Do you participate in God's kingdom purposes, serving, giving of what God has given, given you? These are the things, these practices, these ancient disciplines are actually what opens up the fullness of grace to us because we don't do it so that God will approve us, of us. We do it because he has approved of us and he loves us and we wanna grow in that love and we do that together and this is what it means to be yielded by the Spirit. And when we truly give ourselves to Christ, we give ourselves away every day. I present myself as a living sacrifice that Jesus may take full control. And when I don't do that, all hell breaks loose because the old Josh has the ability to raise up so fast, I don't even know what hit me. But my family knows it when it's the flesh living and not, and not the new man. And so I just, I just challenge you, we need together to pursue the things of Christ. And that means that we've got to question the things that we allow to shape our views. How much of the world do we let in instead of being a light in the world? It's a question I can't answer for you, but I, want, I, know, that I know in my own life areas that have to change if I want to experience the fullness that Christ would have for me. And I'll just close this series with this statement. You have as much of Jesus as you choose to have. God has given us his spirit. There is no excuse for us to not press in and experience the fullness. Why do we waste our time? Why do we waste our times in the slum, as C.S. Lewis said, when we, when we could have so much more, clinging to, to refuse when we can have life and life abundantly? Jesus loves you. He wants you to experience his fullness. He's given you his spirit. Yield to the Spirit, follow after the Spirit, and you will have the fruit of the Spirit. Amen?